Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. So we have this self thing. Actually, what we have is a mass of biological, psychological, and social contingencies, which are effervescent, highly dependent on, and conditioned by each other in constant flux, as changes in one part of the network of such contingencies ripple through to other areas. And yet we have the hubris, which itself just arises as another contingency in the network, to presume that somewhere in this, there is something I can point to as me, as a fixed and substantial point within this tangled snarl of contingencies that is set apart as an experiencer of its surroundings and as an agent able to, through free will, to act as a conditioning factor itself, as a source of new fluxes within the network of contingencies. And it doesn't stop there. This me sets itself in opposition to what is not me, finding both resources and dangers there with respect to its own self-interests. It then begins to colonize parts of the network of contingencies as parts of me and mine. The impulse to construct a self is certainly biologically encoded, probably as a very early genetic adaptation. It manifests in individual cognition. Many of our social structures either enhance or presuppose interacting selves and therefore keep us locked into ourselves. Economic exchange, for instance, presupposes selves pursuing their own self-interest, whereas gifts do not at least not necessarily. Competition in all its guises, students competing for grades, employees competing for promotions, presuppose selves. And so the self is born and grows. The Buddha taught that it is important to reverse this process. Actually, most religions in their earliest forms extolled the value of selflessness, of humility. The self is the source of unethical behavior as we set ourselves in opposition to each other as competitors. It is a source of harm and also a source of misery for psychologically happiness or even satisfaction is invariably elusive when we frame the world in terms of me and mine. Our ancestors, the apes, and virtually all of the animal kingdom have selves and are locked into behaving as selves as a matter of survival under harshly competitive conditions. But human social evolution has provided more wiggle room 
certain corners or even whole sectors of the sociocultural matrix in which we are safe to deconstruct the self and not be exploited by greater selves than our own. We may even become non-selves, selfless persons. It requires that we refuse to participate in those structures that are inimical to spiritual well-being. Elsewhere, Buddhist practice is able to produce abundant fruit. The monastic sangha was doubtlessly designed with these considerations in mind. It is a moral community of renunciates that follows very strict standards. It is maintained in virtually every Buddhist culture and provides a rare opportunity for anyone with the wherewithal and freedom from other commitments to live by its standards. For others, it provides a model for standards, values, and practices that can be integrated into householder life selectively. Be aware, Buddhism is not a one-size-fits-all tradition. We choose to enter Buddhist practice at whatever level we are ready for and may choose a different level of commitment later in life. Monastics are those who have chosen to go off the deep end. So how does this work? Although Sangha life is a life of renunciation, it is ideally not a life of deprivation. We've seen that deprivation calls forth desperation, and desperation calls forth self-protection. Certain assets are defined as requisites for members of the Sangha, most prominently food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. But even to ordain a monk needs, aside from robes, an alms bowl, and needle and thread for repairs, and some other things. But monastics are renunciates, which means simplicity in all things. What a monk could possess was highly restricted in the early years of the Sangha, but tended to an increase over time. I don't know how I would fare, for instance, without books, writing implements, or this Dell laptop computer on which I'm recording this podcast. Monastics live in an economy of gifts. An economy is made of the flow of goods and services among persons. A gift is a flow that is potentially selfless, a product of kindness. What would happen if the entire basis of our economy were like this? It was probably nearly like that in our ancestral environment. Notable alternatives to gifts are trade or exchange or stealing, all of which presuppose a self and self-interest. Most of our modern economy is exchange and stealing by sleight of hand. Exchange is a rather recent development. Anthropologists tell us gifts were the rule before the advent of money systems, though generally gifts with an implicit understanding of eventual reciprocation through return gifts. Monastics are allowed neither to steal, of course, nor to participate in the exchange economy. 
This is what the earliest rules tell us. But complete withdrawal from some exchange is the exception nowadays and very difficult to implement in modern society. What if I, as a monk, for instance, need to drive myself somewhere but run out of gas? The point is that everything the monastic possesses or consumes is a gift, beginning with food, clothing, shelter, medicine, an alms bowl, needle, and thread. The monastic is not allowed to acquire anything through any kind of business or livelihood or other means of compensation. We're like kittens, just not as cute. However, monastics require little. We are the world's cheapest clergy. We don't own a house and a speedboat on the lake, nor are we putting a child through college. Furthermore, while helpless with regard to ourselves, unlike kittens, there are virtually no limits on what the monastic can do for others, as long as our efforts are uncompensated. We teach, provide pastoral care, organize meditation retreats, do good works. Many monks and nuns in Myanmar, for instance, run orphanages at their local monasteries or grammar schools. Many raise donations and organize health clinics. Why, I'm offering this podcast as a gift. Local householders donate to personal needs, allowing monastics to freely engage in other projects without thinking about who's paying whom for what. In this way, we live in an economy of gifts. Moreover, householders who spend time or even live for periods of time at monasteries partake in the economy of gifts during those times, find great joy in giving, and integrate the Buddhist value of generosity quite eagerly into their household lives. They become more generous to their neighbors. That's well and good, but how does the Sangha deal with hierarchy? Humans almost invariably organize themselves into status hierarchies of some kind. Teacher, student, employer, employee, manager, manage, general, corporal, higher, low-grade, point average, beautiful and ugly, charming or dull, VIP or ordinary bloke, and so on. The Sangha is an organization. What kind of hierarchy does it have? Recall that there are dominance hierarchies in society in which the higher-ups have coercive power over the lower downs and prestige hierarchies in which merit is recognized in terms of the values of the culture, intelligence, athletic skill, and so on, or simply age. Status relationships in any culture are reflected in symbolic expressions of respect, such as forms of address, Mr., ma'am, etc., bowing, saluting, etc., deference and sharing resources, etc. Bowing is important in India and much of the rest of the world, and by extension in Buddhist culture everywhere. In fact, placing one's body in a physically lower position to mark deference 
is certainly a genetic adaptation shared with chimps, dogs, and other animals that have a hierarchical social structure by nature, including humans. The downside of hierarchies is that even if not blatantly coercive, they can still be self-serving and lead to competition for advancement in the hierarchy. But they don't have to be. There's a degree of safety and even selflessness in finding a place in a hierarchy, deferring to and serving one's seniors with no thought of usurping them as long as the hierarchy is benign because you don't have to compete. There is, in fact, a status hierarchy within the Sangha and between the Sangha and householders, but it is carefully conceived. There is, by design, no hierarchy between one monastery and another. The hierarchy that does exist within the Sangha is quite flat. However, coercion is almost completely absent. In particular, monks cannot tell householders what to do. Few people seem to realize that. They also cannot excommunicate lay people. The extent of a monk's coercive power is to refuse to let a lay person offer alms to him by turning his bowl upside down. Householders actually have considerable tacit coercive power over monks, because if they get mad at the monks, they can withhold alms and put the monks out of business very quickly. This serves as a check, in fact, on the integrity of the Sangha. Nonetheless, householders traditionally show monks and nuns respect, deference, and veneration. The Sangha is, after all, the third refuge and the third gem The Sangha is sacred, but this doesn't make the individual monk sacred. America is not generally a respectful culture, so the function of respect is often misunderstood here. But respect is what opens one's heart and mind to the influence of the monastics. This is how the monastic counterculture influences the rest of society as the promoters, sustainers, and role models for the Buddhist life. Monks are not allowed to teach to those who show disrespect. Within the Sangha, the Buddha did something clever with regard to status. There is an account of this in the Vinaya. The Buddha said, Who, bhikkhus, is worthy of the best seat, the best water, the best food. Some of the bhikkhus said, whoever went forth from a noble warrior family is worthy of the best seat, the best water, the best food. Some of them said, whoever went forth from a Brahmin family, from a householder family, whoever is an expert on the discourses, whoever is an expert on the discipline, whoever is a Dharma teacher, Whoever has gained the first jhana, the second jhana, the third jhana, the fourth jhana, whoever is a stream winner, a once-returner, a non-returner, an arahant, a master of the three knowledges, a master of the six cognitive skills, 
is worthy of the best seat, the best water, the best food. At this point, it was clear that the monks could not agree on a criterion for status and, left to their own devices, would each choose their own, then be tempted to compete with one another. So the Buddha, understanding the human need to fit into some kind of hierarchy, declared a system of seniority based on a rather arbitrary attribute over which it would be impossible to compete. Ordination date. That's it. Every monk or nun remembers their ordination date and how many yearly rains retreats they've experienced since ordination. I'm 14 wasa myself. There are certain obligatory expressions of respect that a junior monastic shows toward a senior monastic. I do three full prostrations to the senior monk at my monastery, for instance, before embarking on a trip or upon returning from a trip. I greet him with a simple bow each morning, try to let him walk in front of me, and hold doors open for him. Lay people and junior monks will tend to do the same for me. It's entirely symbolic. Senior monks don't actually get the best food or best water. Incidentally, householders are free to express respect however they like. In order for monks to avoid competition for status among householders, and possibly inequality in alms donations, monastics are not allowed to talk about spiritual attainments to householders, nor endear themselves to improve their donations. There is therefore limited opportunity for personal self-presentation. In fact, monastic attire is uniform, and there are uniform rules of etiquette towards householders. However, the Buddha was concerned with the self-presentation of the Sangha as a whole within the prevailing culture, which is why Sangha members follow rules of etiquette with respect to householders, wearing their robes neatly, not skipping or singing into the village, and so on. This begins to give an idea, there are many other facets to this, of how the Sangha provides a context in which the self, to the considerable extent it may still haunt the mind of a given monastic, has virtually no discernible function in the monastic life except to make the monastic miserable. Such a self easily loses its foothold. Effectively operating without a viable self would leave the monastic extremely vulnerable in a parched, competitive world if it were not for the monastery and the sangha. The monastery is an oasis in that world. The generous support of householders is crucial to sustaining such a context. Virtually all of the progress a householder or a monastic is likely to make on the Buddhist path will be directly correlated with what one is unwilling to participate in, from the physical trappings of life, 
coercive relations and obligations, unwholesome livelihoods, to the things that evoke needy emotions like lust, greed, envy, pride, avarice, or aversive emotions of hatred, anger, fear, jealousy, and denial, the whole need for having to be somebody. The Buddhist path entails a long process of disentanglement, strand by strand, from the soap opera of life. The power of the monastic life is in creating a context in which all of this is possible. I hope I've made the point that social teachings are very prominent in the Dharma Vinaya. This takes us far beyond the idea of Buddhism as an effective way of coping individually with the social dysfunction of the world in which we live as a form of self-help. Not that it can't do that, too. Next week, I'll probably end this series on Buddhism as self-help with discussion of the surprising spiritual dimension of social cognition.